This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to uh, the Austin Zen Center online Zendo, which um, has been in operation since the beginning of our pandemic and will likely continue through the holidays uh, and we'll see what happens in the new year. I just wanted to start by saying uh, that I feel such gratitude for Kokyo and uh, uh, for coming out to Austin this fall uh, at my invitation to come lead the fall practice period on Buddha nature and of um, holding our community during this, uh, this whole season with his teachings and his uh, presence. And the entire practice period uh, came to a close last night, uh, simultaneous with the close of our Rohatsu Sashin. And, um, and gratitude to all the people who came and practiced with us at uh, during the practice period whether it was as official practice period students or people who just came and sat in our Zendo, uh, which we were able to reopen with a little bit of a false start in the summer, but then, you know, back in practice period to be able to reopen to in-person sitting, which uh, I don't know about you, but um, being able to practice in person is, uh, um, is our tradition is to do this together and not only our tradition but deeply felt in the very bones of our bodies uh, to be uh, with one another breathing in the same space uh, moving together uh, taking up the particularities of our uh, our formal zen practice together with our forms and ceremonies that uh, to a you know, to a newcomer may feel kind of odd. <laughs> maybe not just odd, but maybe downright frightening, I think, sometimes for beginners. Um, I wonder if anyone here is uh, is new to the Austin Zen Center. Anyone here for the first time? Welcome. Welcome, Matt. And uh, I don't know if it looks weird to you, or if you have some Zen, uh, Zen formal Zen practice in your background. But this particular school um, has been, well, our particular school of Soto Zen Buddhism, which, um, you know, began in China and moved to Japan and then on into to us here in America. Um, it's, it's funny, one of our residents recently was, I was speaking to her and she said that uh, she relayed a conversation she had with someone who was uh, fairly new to practice who asked her um is this a cult <laughs> when i heard her say you know the, uh, say this and i've heard people ask this many times you know my my feeling was i said definitely <laughs> it's definitely a cult it's a 2500 year old cult <laughs> but she uh she told me that what she said to the person asking her whether it was a cult she said her response was something like, well, I think the difference between Zen and, uh, and what we think of as being a cult, she said, cults in my, my impression of cults is that they're very easy to get into and very hard to get out of. And she said, in her experience, Zen practice is very hard to get into <laughs> and very easy to, to lose track of, like it's easy to drift away. So that was her her description of the difference between Zen and and cults, and I thought, well, that's that's pretty astute. Yeah, it is pretty difficult, I think, to get into Zen practice, um, especially alone. You know, it's it's not difficult to sit down and well, maybe it is difficult. It's not difficult to have the intention to sit down and settle the mind on one's breath and one's body uh to to try that out but i find it, it it's kind of difficult especially in a world of busyness and um strife 
and concern for oneself and one's family members and loved ones, it can be very difficult to make the effort to come back to the cushion, to come back to uh, basically doing nothing but just sitting. Doing being the, the term of like, stop doing, to not be doing, but turning to being. And in this, uh, I say in this world, I, I know many of you have heard me say over the last few years that, uh, you know, the world is, uh, you know, changing rapidly. Maybe people always say this, maybe every generation says this, oh, these days, the kids these days. <laughs> However, I feel like there's a deep, deep wish in all of us, in all of us without exception, to find our way in this world, uh, to integrate with, um, you know, the deepest quality of our own being. And what that means, I think, in Buddhism and in, in Buddhism in general, and Zen in particular, is when we come to sit, which we have, uh, you know, as I said, thank you very much to those who, who came and sat with us during this practice period and during the last seven days of our Rohatsu Sashin, uh, commemorating the Buddha's enlightenment, to take that kind of time to settle the self on the self. Um, it takes effort. It takes a, you know, it can take quite a lot of effort to uh, disentangle from worldly affairs for some time and to, um, turn inward to find the interior light of our awareness and then to extend that light to extend that awareness uh, into every moment to continuously return to what's happening now in this present moment not in a discursive way not in a uh you know, in a statement of like, well, this is happening now, as in like some objective truth about the world, but to turn subjectively to what's happening in my own body and mind. Um, and we have these, you know, we have zendos and zen centers and other meditation centers around the world that are devoted to creating a safe space for people to, go, to do just that, to come and find their seat and to turn inward and to and to um, investigate uh, the causes and conditions that lead to this moment. You know, what's happening now? So as I as I said, we've just finished this uh, Rohatsu Sashin, which is the commemoration of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I want to say a little bit about enlightenment and just what, you know, what is, you know, we hear the word enlightenment and it can mean so many different things. And we have, um, you know, sometimes some very lofty ideas about enlightenment, about being, you know, finding or attaining a state of like non perturbance of being calm and uh, serene, uh, still, and maybe even touching the very nature of emptiness of um, uh, which which can, you know, uh, I think it can also, that view of enlightenment, um, th those views of enlightenment, really sometimes, you know, can leap over sort of the, the fundamental Buddhist idea of freedom and liberation from suffering. So enlightenment, in some ways, is exactly that. It is the uh, alleviation of suffering in not just oneself, but out of concern for the entire world, for others, for all beings. And when you look at the root of suffering, it really comes down, as the Buddha said, to three things called the three poisons, greed, hatred and delusion. So when we take the time to sit in silence, 
we're not necessarily coming in with the attitude of I'm going to study my greed, hate, and delusion, although that's really what kind of comes up when you really notice when you're sitting, especially uh, when all you have in front of you is a blank wall and thoughts arise and cease, and we get to slow down our world so that we actually are able to be present and notice the minutia of our thoughts, of our physicality, of our five aggregates in perpetual motion, and constantly allowing everything to arise in that moment and then watching it cease, allowing it to arise and cease over and over again. And within that awareness, uh, we may start noticing our own desires, our attachments, our hindrances. And maybe if, uh, if you know, we had on our front door, come, become more intimate with your own suffering. <laughs> Nobody would come. <laughs> Nobody would want to do that. And yet, I don't know about you, but I have never gone to a period of Zazen and come away from it thinking, wow, that was, that was a waste of my time. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I feel so much worse now that I've sat Zazen. <laughs> However, making the effort to, to sit down and be in silence and allow things to come and pass, uh, that, can, that can take some effort. Uh, speaking for myself, I know there's always, always one more thing that needs to be taken care of, and that can lead to a certain um, agitation and busyness that when we sit on the cushion, um, we relinquish. We, um, you know, it may come back in the next moment, but in sitting, allowing it to be there, this is what's happening now and then allowing it to cease. This is a practice. So today is a celebratory day. We are commemorating the Buddha's enlightenment through our enlightenment ceremony, where we'll get to prance around in a jovial manner in our side yard um, in the windy, cold afternoon of Austin, and uh, pay homage to Shakyamuni Buddha for his uh, uh, guidance, his teachings, for setting out on a path, and for um, his seven days of upright sitting under the Bodhi tree. And not only is it a day to celebrate enlightenment and to celebrate coming back to one's true self, it's also today we are uh, having a, um, a bodhisattva initiation ceremony, welcoming three uh, initiates to this path, to this life of practice in this particular flavor of our school of Soto Zen, which is characterized by um, upright sitting, characterized by careful attention to detail, not in an obsessive compulsive way, but in a, a way that opens our heart. Right? We, um, in putting down selfish concerns, uh, we actually get to see our selfish concerns and to see the cause and effect, the conditions of our lives that lead to uh, maybe unskillful or unwholesome behaviors. And so the Bodhisattva initiation is welcoming uh, baby Bodhisattvas, as you, as it were, to this path of practice, which is a practice that is marked entirely by a dedication to non-harming. So this connection, I think there's a, a, a very, not just to say it's a deep connection is, is, is not enough. The connection between say enlightenment and ethical behavior. 
sometimes it's uh, I've heard it said that ethics or the precepts, you know, the initiates today will receive the 16 bodhisattva precepts and will, you know, will be asked, do you, do you want to be on this path? Do you want to uh, uh, take up these practices for the welfare of all beings, including oneself and others? Do you want to do that? And each time these initiates will, you know, will have to look inside and say, do I want to do this? Do I want to take up this path of practice? And then if they do, they will say it aloud in public. Yes, yes, I will. This uh, connection between ethics or ethical behavior or morality or um, acting in a manner that causes no harm, fundamentally causes no harm. Ethics and enlightenment are like the right hand and left hand washing one another. They're not separable. Liberation, our liberation and the liberation of all beings is not separate from how we are in our daily life, moment after moment. And in Zen in particular, I don't know if this is, uh, this is, uh, flavor is found in other schools, but particularly in Zen, it's not even just other beings that we take care of. It's every, every particle of our experience, whether it's, uh, and over these past seven days, eating orioki in the zendo, which is the nested three bowls, and receiving food and in a ceremonial manner, again, ceremonial in the sense that there's a form that we are, we learn and we participate in, and then we join our voices together in, you know, paying our respect and gratitude as we receive the food that nourishes us to be able to practice, to sustain us. When we take up these forms and enter into this particular uh, way of practice, you know, it's not for everyone. And yet, when those who come to Zen practice mm -hmm. uh, practice their patience and their presence and looking at what's arising and ceasing moment after moment, we give over to the collective, the whole of of the chanting, the whole of beings, all aspiring in whatever way, and with ever with the bodies that they have, with the mental uh, factors that happen to be present, all of it coming together, we join in this as a. It's a you know I think all of our ceremonies in some sense are ritual enactments of awakening, and. Um, for myself, I'll just say a few things. I want to keep this short talk somewhat short so that we can begin setting up for our ceremonies. But my own experience in uh, coming to practice, um, I started as a meditator before coming to Zen. I was a meditator. And my interest in meditation was really about my own mind and how I could um, I wouldn't say find peace. I think it was actually, <laughs> I think I actually came to practice as a, uh, just being interested in, in mind and the nature of mind and how we know and what we know and how we can um, know what's true, what's true in this world, what's true in this body and mind. And it wasn't, you know, when I learned meditate, how to meditate, it was through the transcendental meditation that I, I started. And it took a little while. It was about maybe six or seven years of being a meditator focused on myself before I, you know, started learning more about Buddhism. And I, you know, went through a number of different practice places just as a, maybe it's like a tourist, <laughs> just dipping my toe in, trying to, like, what are these places, you know, and um, reading what I could about the nature of emptiness, the nature of mind. Um, and then 
finding, settling at one point, going to, I remember going to a Dharma talk at the San Francisco Zen Center where my teacher was speaking. And you know, I can't even remember now what he spoke on, but you know how sometimes when you go to a Dharma talk and you just listen to what's being said, sometimes it uh, it's the, the speaker seems to be speaking directly to you. <laughs> That's how it was for me. And I do remember ethics being part of the Dharma talk and my own kind of mental calculation of like weighing what was being said with what I felt I believed in my heart and feeling like, wow, there's something here that feels like I'm coming home. This is, this speaks true uh, for me. And that was the feeling at, at that, tar- that Dharma talk. And I kept coming back. And when I heard of, I saw people wearing the Raksu and I was curious about that. What is that? You know, people would say, well, this is uh, receiving the precepts. This is stepping on this path of ethical conduct and ethical awareness. To me, that that felt like something, you know, that I felt like, well, I've been doing that. I, yeah, I, this is uh, very important to me. Ethical behavior is of extreme importance to me as a philosophy student studying ethics, for example. Um, however, you know, I think that all of us, without exception, uh, want to know for ourselves what is true, what, uh, how not to harm, how not to harm each other, how not to harm ourselves through our behaviors of body, speech, and mind. Each of us, ultimately, we want to know how to live in this world. And then, uh, when I uh, would go to Bodhisattva uh, full moon ceremonies, which we're having uh, this upcoming Wednesday at 6.45, and the full moon ceremonies are a, um, a rededication to our path of practice, path of uh, ethical conduct. And I remember being at these Bodhisattva ceremonies and kind of like, well, am I willing to say this one? Is this one, you know, what does this mean? <laughs> what does it mean not to, uh, not to intoxicate? You know, if I have a glass, of, is that okay? If I have a glass of wine at dinner, is it, you know? So I remember, you know, kind of weighing as we were publicly, you know, chanting these vows, I remember weighing them and being like, you know, weighing myself and, and um, my own behavior which um, you know was kind of the start of for me of um, looking at these set of bodhisattva precepts and my own conditioning and past conditioning leading to future actions and really sort of looking at both of them together and not out of a sense of I want to, well, not completely out of a sense of like, I want to be a good person. I want to follow the rules. I mean, there are some, you know, like what is, what's, what's acceptable in this community? What's, you know, what's expected when I say this, what does it mean to do, to say these vows, to, to make, to make these vows. And more and more as I, um, as I recited them and then returned to the cushion, again, both of these things, sitting and opening one's heart to the present, to what's happening right now. How does what's happening right now affect what's happening later? How is it conditioned by what happened prior? to really settling over and over again, and then coming emerging from that settled space into daily life, into ordinary actions. And um, again, it's, it was not a intellectual endeavor. Sometimes, you know, given my mind, <laughs> I turned it into an intellectual endeavor, but ultimately uh, really coming back to what's true, what's true in this, this one, um, which 
this Zendo space and all Zendo spaces, I think, are created and maintained carefully, uh, lovingly, uh, to be able to extend this practice to anyone who, who feels like sitting down for a moment and looking at their mind. So when I took the precepts, um, I actually didn't do the ceremony that we were doing this afternoon. Um, I had sewn my rakasu. I was intending to take the Bodhisattva precept ceremony in the Jukai ceremony. And I held off for a number of reasons. And uh, uh, mostly because the teacher that I was studying with wasn't able to give me the precepts. So I was going to wait for her to be ready to give me the precepts for her to receive Dharma transmission. So I put it off for a while. And then I went to Tassajara and more and more becoming uh, convinced in myself of wanting to not just have these practices be something that, you know, I carve out and make time for in my, you know, away from other things in my life, not something that was separate from uh, other aspects of my life, of my living, but actually to make them central, to make them central to how, to who I was and how I was in the world and decided to ordain as a priest. And uh, in part, you know, this, the Bodhisattva precepts, the, the initiation ceremonies, they are, um, whether ordaining as a lay person and practicing in the world or whether entering monastic practice, the precepts are the same. And yet for me, I wanted to um, take up the, the forms and ceremonies of this school out of love, out of love for them and out of uh, gratitude for what they did for this particular one, for this body and mind, um, how they opened up a world for me and wanting to extend that really for anyone with even an inkling of wanting to sit down for a moment and to look deeply. It is said that uh, uh, that spiritual friendship is uh, not just a part of the holy path, but the whole of the holy path. So again, we do this practice together, these ceremonies that these uh, initiation ceremonies are public ceremonies. And even before the ceremony, if you are hanging around a Zen center, you might notice that some people have decided to start sewing, you know, sewing Buddha's robe. And there's this story, which I can't recall the exact details of the story. I think it was Katagiri Roshi who's asked about the meaning of the robe. Uh, and uh, actually, no, I don't know if it was the meaning of the robe, but the, but the response to this question of like, what is this? What is this about? Um, he pointed to his robe and, and said, said robe, <laughs> but, <laughs> ah, thank you. The meaning, Turo, what is the meaning of a robe chant, the chant that we do before putting on our rakasu or okesa? And he just pointed and said, he said robe. However, <laughs> I've heard that what he really said was not robe, but the word love. Which I don't know if you know this, but in Japanese, uh, the R sound and the L sound are pretty much identical. <laughs> and the B sound and the V sound are also pretty much identical. So robe and love spoken by a Japanese speaker sound the same. So did Katagiri say robe or did he say love? And my own feeling is he said love. He said love, this spiritual friendship that one shares. Again, it's a certain kind of love. It's not a love of preferences, of uh, personality. It's a love of a shared, uh, a shared wish, a shared intention to wake up for the benefit of all beings, 
a shared intention to uh, travel this path with one another because it cannot be done alone. Um, well, not that it can't be done alone, but it's done in relationship, in relationship to every being that one meets. And uh, recently, I think there was, I gave a talk, we had had a, a meeting, a board meeting where we were doing some uh, brainstorming on some of some questions like about the Austin Zen Center, what does, you know, who does Austin Zen Center serve? Who does the Austin Zen Center serve? Or who, who does any Zen Center serve? And, you know, we brainstormed a bunch of, you know, well, there's the members and there's our supporters and there's the the people who come and sit in our Zendo and there's, you know, the aspirants to awakening. So all of this was, you know, coming around and, and, uh, and we got a little bit deeper. It's actually to the person who is, um, you know, having difficulty on our front porch, you know, to the mail carrier delivering our mail. You know, every person that we come into contact with, whether we're at the Austin Zen Center or not, that our intention is to um, open our hearts and uh, to every being that we come into contact with. And as I was mentioning in Zen, it's even beyond every being in our particular school our way is to carefully attend to even the inanimate objects in our lives, our Oriyoki bowls and utensils, the pots and pans in the kitchen. Um, for this past Sashin, I spent the seven days uh, working in the kitchen as the Tenzo, which is a, um, if you've read Dogen Zenji's Tenzo Kyokun, which is, I would say, a fantastic manual of how to practice uh, in, in activity and motion, uh, as opposed to silence sitting with doing nothing, but practicing with, you know, making food, making offerings to sustain others in their practice because they are not separate. They are not separate from us. And um, gratitude to those of you who also helped with nourishing and sustaining the practitioners sitting in the Zendo by making soups, making salads, and coming in and offering that as a gift uh, to nourish and sustain the practice of those who are sitting in the Zendo. So, being in the position of Tenzo of, you know, thinking about what meals will be nourishing and preparing the menus, selecting the ingredients and, you know, the practice of, you know, let's say you have some ingredients that are not so what you would select would have selected, <laughs> but how to welcome those ingredients. So we don't just look at this carrot that's a little wonky shaped and toss it. No, we find a, we find a, a, <laughs> we find a space for that carrot, you know, the carrot itself is allowed to take its seat among us. This is the, uh, this is the, the flavor of our school of being welcoming to what's what arises and to find a way to uh, whether, you know, as is or in some transformative matter to uh, put that particular thing into uh, to, to utilize it, to give it its own purpose and space in our mandala of uh, practicing being awake together. So in this 2,500 year old cult, uh, which, you know, as I said, is not for everyone. I think the elements of it, uh, the elements of, of these practices can be taken up by anyone at any time. And um, we here at the Austin Zen Center, our uh, wish is to maintain and sustain these practices for those who are suffering to find a place where they can sit
and look deeply at the nature of their suffering, the nature of awareness of uh, how to live this life um, together with all beings. Something that this world, maybe at all times, but in my heart feel particularly now, uh, this is what the world is crying out for. It's crying out for um, practices of connection, of not turning away, of examining deeply the causes and conditions that lead to, you know, behaviors that are unskillful or cause harm. And without blame or shame, just really matter of factly, oh, when this, uh, when this arises, this is the consequence. When that ceases, this other thing ceases. So really looking at the nature of cause and effect of our, uh, how our actions ripple out to the entire universe and how they come back to us and to, um, to those around us. This practice is, um, the practice is about liberation from, uh, the hindrances that come and go in our minds and bodies. It's looking at them in a way of, uh, in a way that's, uh, again, not blaming or shaming, but with curiosity, with compassion and loving kindness and with, uh, with love. So I thank those of you who have taken these precepts. I encourage those of you who are interested in receiving precepts to start studying the precepts. And by studying, I mean, you know, what do they mean in my daily life? You know, how can I take up this particular precept of, say, uh, not praising self at the expense of others? Like, what does that mean? And do I do this or how do I do this, even in, in more and more subtle ways? Even within inter internally, how do I, you know, uh, um, not with other people, but within myself, how do I praise one part of myself at the expense of another, right? It's not the praising that's the issue or the, um, it's the, you know, the expense. How to not do this at the expense of another part of myself. So from oneself, radiating out to the entire world, each of the precepts to take them up, to be curious about their meaning in our, uh, in our daily life, in our activity, in our activity of the body, of our speech, and internally in our minds, over and over again, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of love and gratitude and celebration for uh, this precious human life where what we do does uh, make a difference. So I think that's all I wanted to say as a, uh, uh, a, a welcome and invitation to come be with us this afternoon as we celebrate some auspicious events. Thank you very much. Are there any comments? David, I see your hand. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Mako, for, for all of that. And I want to say to the Sangha how grateful I am for you and for your practice and um, how meaningful it is to me to know um, all of the energy and the benefit and the intentions that have gone into the practice period and into the Rohatsu. Um, I just want to thank you all and let you know how grateful I am that you have done that. 
And um, I, um, as a human, as a being on the planet, I am so grateful for your uh, effort and, and consideration in doing that. So thank you. Thank you, David. True. Marco, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, this question of cult, without going into all of the common and current associations of that word, which are uh, not positive, it shares the same root as uh, our word to cultivate, mm. like to till the ground, to garden, to, to nurture the soil. And so in some ways we should embrace this term. It's very accurate for Zen, I think, this cultivation of practice. And you can say, yes, yes, it is a cult, and this is why. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that, Tro. I just want to say about the, the cult, the cult thing is that my own personal conditioning, um, I don't have any uh, uh, trauma associated with with cults in my own life, so I can be, you know, I can joke about it or be flippant. But just to say that I do know people who have uh, stumbled into or been lured into or what have you into very damaging personality cults or cults that, uh, you know, exert control and um and and just to say that you know i can be you know jokingly say yes i'm happy being a cultist <laughs> but but again it's not i don't really think of myself as a cultist but um the sect of soto zen you know you know in that in that sense of cultivation is most definitely a cult and um but it's not a cult of control and it's not a cult of uh, coercion. And anybody who wants to stop practicing for whatever reason, we don't try and, well, we don't, yeah, we don't really try and stop people. <laughs> it's like, actually, it's like you are, you know, it's also, you know, it's up to you. Your practice is up to you, despite being completely interconnected with all beings. Um, if anything, maybe we, uh, well, speaking for myself, if anything, I, um, I think I have a lot of trust in this practice to the point that, you know, if someone says, you know, I'm not going to practice this way anymore, like in my head, I'm always like, okay, you'll be back. <laughs> Maybe not to this school or this center or, you know, but, you know, it's part of one's life to, um, you know, you, once you taste taste it when you sit in in stillness um that seed is planted and uh whether it's in zen or in any other meditative contemplative tradition once the seed is planted it uh it will eventually ripen and bear fruit and so sometimes i don't you know i don't somebody says oh I, you know i want to move away i want to stop doing this I don't try and yeah, I don't try and stop them. And maybe I maybe I should <laughs> say something like, well, are you sure about that? <laughs> but, but mostly I think out of a, a sense of trust and um, and love. It's like, you know, you do you. You continue to uh, to live your life and you know, look as deeply as you can to the causes and conditions that uh arise and cease that lead to actions and behaviors and uh you know we're all we're all doing that whether we necessarily know it or not now uh cultivating that is what we're about we're cultivating that uh that practice um to continually come back to return to this moment and to um to look deeply Yes, Bruce, I see you. Hi. Hey. No, I, I, I appreciate this line of discussion um, very much because I've had a parent who say who, who has said, oh, I still think it's a cult. Um, but uh, I, I, I would say it's just, it's a culture mm. um, with, you know, shared 
habits and values more or less shared um, expectations and just like things that we do. Like when I was in college marching band, it was a culture, a subculture, you know, that, that outsiders would come in and go, what the, like, like they, it would be totally foreign to them. And I, I don't know, I just find it hard to think of it as a cult when, you know, the, the, the founder said, well, don't, don't, take my word for this. Don't believe things because they're written or teachers say what it like, like investigate this for yourself. That doesn't sound very culty um, to me. And, and I think maybe part of the appeal of a cult is that they tell you what to do. And that hasn't been my experience here so much. I mean, there are plenty of invitations like this happens at this time and we need your help with this, or please consider that. Um, but no, it's not, I, I I don't I don't feel very culty about it at all, but I can understand why it would appear that way. It's 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 a subculture, and and if you're on the outside looking in, it can be very strange. And you see people doing things, and you think, "Who's making you do that?" Like, well, me. But um, yeah, the one other thing I wanted to say very quickly is just that Mako, your comment about um, chanting the precepts and, and saying, oh, I don't know if I want to say this. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with this. Reminded me of a joke I once heard about um, why Unitarians are so bad at singing hymns. Why is that? Because they're always reading ahead to see if they believe in it or not. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Thank you. Thank you for that. Any other comments, questions? One thing uh, that uh, I don't know why this this reminded me of it, Bruce. But uh, in looking at the one thing to say about the precepts again, in terms of the the lack of coercion, right, or the lack of control, the you know precept practice is um, one of the one of the ways. Sometimes it's it's said that the precepts. You know the pre the practice of precepts is not a um, it's not a rule following. These are not rules in the or commandments in a in the sense that uh, the Christian maybe the Christian cult, <laughs> which is also a cult, right? Christianity is also a cult, <laughs> right? It's a uh, you know any religion you can say is a has a is a cult, um, but the practice of precepts. Um, it is said that the uh, when one practices with the precepts, it's uh, it's living in alignment with awakening. And to try that out, to really uh, you know, in the study of the precepts, so we here have been studying precepts. There's been a precept group studying precepts for. Um, I think as long as I've been at the Austin Zen Center, holding a precept study group, um, it's not just sort of like, what are these, you know, like, are these rules that we need to follow and that we need to be kind of watchdogs to uh, ourselves and other people? Are you sure you're following these precepts? It's more like the precepts are a description of an awakened mind descriptions of how an enlightened being is quite naturally quite naturally meaning naturally when the three poisons of greed hatred and delusion are seen through completely and are uh, turned over and transformed what is left when greed hatred and delusion are uh, have subsided and what is left is the bodhisattva path or the path of taking up these precepts in one's life. And so on the one hand, you could say, well, all we need to do is sit zazen and not worry about the precepts because the precepts will follow. And I've definitely heard many people kind of imply that. And in maybe in a way that's true when really settling the self in the moment and deeply investigating what's happening now that that settling you know allows us to start to see things more clearly than when we're you know caught up in our 
you know, concerns of, uh, you know, of me and mine, right? So when we settle the self on the self in Zazen, whether it's standing, sitting, walking, lying down, making food, going to the grocery store, blowing leaves in the side yard, whatever it is, um, when we do that, uh, the precepts are right there with us. That this this conduct, the ethical behavior that the precepts outlines, is a you know you could say is what naturally emerges from a mind free from greed, hate, and delusion. And then there's the cultivation, the cult cult uh, cultivation part of um, you know trying on practices and and seeing like not just practices for others but really as a way of looking deeply at our own mind, you know, and, and its own trappings, like where do we get caught? You know, where do we find, oh, like, a, like the feeling of, you know, it could be a feeling of, you know, resentment or a feeling of hatred or a feeling of lack, you know, we can get caught in those feelings that then lead to, well, I'm going to go do this then because, you know, who else is looking out for me? <laughs> I need to look out for me. And so I'm going to take this thing or I'm going to push this thing away. Or, you know, when we settle deeply, those uh, impulses of needing to get, you know, grasp those themselves, like we actually have everything we need right here. There's no need to grasp that those things that seem threatening that we're fearful of, there's no need to push them away. Now, how we engage, if we're not pushing away or pulling towards, that's, you know, that's the, the big question, you know, that we continually come back to this question. How do I respond appropriately in this moment? And then the next moment comes and it's the new question. How do I respond appropriately? Meaning uh, in the way that um, expresses my true being, my true aspiration. How do I do that? Over and over and over again. So not to follow them as rules or commandments uh, out of a sense of obligation, but to be playful with them, to, to see clearly when I do this, this is the consequence. When I stop doing this, this is the consequence, right? And it takes a settled mind to be able to see clearly. And it takes being able to see clearly to be able to not do harm in this world to ourselves or to others. So I think uh, I should go ahead and end now in order to go talk to the leaf blower and start setting up. And uh, I see some comments here. Congratulations to Alan, Dave, and Jess. The ceremony will also be online if you want to join. And uh, again, please register. If you're coming in person, we need to, uh, it would be nice. We don't need to know, but it would be nice to know how many people to set up for. Thank you all very much and have a wonderful, beautiful, cool day.